Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. On October 19, 1987, a date that would later become known as Black Monday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 508 points, or 22.6%. This was the largest one-day decline that Wall Street had ever seen. That one-day price drop was about the same in percentage terms as the two-day drop that occurred in October 1929 on back-to-back days. There were fears in the wake of the crash that it would lead to another Great Depression, but in fact not even a recession occurred. The unemployment rate was 6% at the time of the crash, and it continued declining after the crash, reaching 5.2% by the time the stock market had fully recovered in 1989. No one-day drop had ever come close to the magnitude of the 1987 crash in the 100 years before the event, nor has there been a drop that severe since. The crash marked the end of a five-year bull market that had seen the Dow rise from 776 in August 1982 to a high of 2,722 in August 1987. The day after the crash, many investors feared that the market would topple again like it had in 1929. However, the market rallied immediately after the crash, posting a record one-day gain of over 100 points the next day, a record that was quickly broken on Thursday the 22nd, when the Dow rose 186.64 points. All in all, it took just under two years for the Dow to recover completely. In today's video, we'll look at the events leading up to the crash, the best explanations for why it happened, and examine how the 1987 crash changed both the way markets function and investor psychology. During the years prior to the crash, equity markets had been strong, so strong that the price increases had outpaced earnings growth, meaning that the price-to-earnings multiples had expanded significantly. Some of the market strength was down to the favourable tax treatment that had been given to the financing of corporate buyouts, like allowing firms to deduct interest expenses associated with debt issued during a buyout. This increased the number of companies that were potential takeover targets, pushing up their stock prices. The market was off to a great start in 1987, and by late August, the Dow Jones was up 69% year-to-date. In mid-October, some bad economic news began to rattle investor confidence, leading to increased market volatility. Let's look at the days leading up to the crash. On Wednesday, October 14th, two major pieces of news broke. First, the US House Ways and Means Committee filed legislation to eliminate the tax benefits associated with financing mergers. The proposed legislation would eliminate the tax deductions for some interest expenses and would start taxing green mail payments made by companies to corporate raiders to buy back their stock at above market prices. 
This news reduced the odds that certain companies would be takeover targets. Leveraged buyouts were a big part of what was happening in markets at the time, and this law was basically shutting Gordon Gecko down. Second, the US Commerce Department announced that the trade deficit for August was notably above expectations. This caused the dollar to decline, increased expectations that the Federal Reserve would tighten policy and pushed up interest rates, putting further downward pressure on equity prices. On Thursday, October 15th, equity markets continued to decline. The press at the time attributed this to investor anxiety. Friday, October 16th, the day before the crash, was what's known in markets as triple witching, a day when stock options, stock index futures and stock index options all expire on the same day. This happens four times a year and usually causes higher trading volume and unusual price action in securities as traders rebalance their hedges. Price declines over the prior two days had eliminated many at-the-money options, so investors couldn't easily roll their positions into new contracts for hedging purposes. This pushed more traders into the futures market, where they sold futures contracts as a hedge against falling stock prices. By the end of the day on Friday, the stock market had fallen considerably. The S&P was down over 9% for the week. This was one of the largest one-week declines that had been seen in the last 20 years, and it helped set the stage for the chaos that erupted the following week. There were signs that futures markets were already being overwhelmed by heavier-than-usual volumes that Friday, as traders on the CME had to meet up on Saturday to try and settle positions and sort out holdings. The weekend break didn't offer much reprieve either, as on Saturday, Treasury Secretary James Baker publicly threatened to devalue the US dollar in order to narrow the nation's widening trade deficit. That brings us to the day of the crash, but first I have to explain what's meant by portfolio insurance and program trading, as these two trading strategies are widely blamed for the 1987 crash. Portfolio insurance was a trading strategy that had grown in popularity in the late 80s and was supposed to limit the losses investors might face from a declining stock market. Broadly speaking, the strategy used computer models that would add to your equity exposure as markets rose and cut your equity exposure as markets fell. Portfolio insurance gave investors a payoff similar to being long a call option in that it gave investors upside exposure but limited downside risk at a cost. Portfolio insurers at the time didn't update their models constantly and there were a few reasons for this. Firstly, because computers were a lot slower and more expensive back then. And secondly, they wanted to minimize their rebalancing as transaction costs can really add up the more you trade, cutting into returns. Instead, they updated their models occasionally, often after large market moves, and then traded in batches. This could add to market volatility as occasional large orders hit the markets. Anyhow, That's portfolio insurance. 
The next trading strategy we need to understand is index arbitrage, which aims to generate returns by exploiting the differences between the value of stocks in an index and the value of stock index futures contracts. If the value of the underlying stocks in an index was lower than the value of a futures contract, then arbitrageurs would buy the stocks and sell the futures contract short, knowing that the prices would have to converge before the expiration date. When the value of stocks in the index was above that of the futures, arbitrageurs could do the opposite. That's how index arbitrage works. Okay, so on Monday, October 19th, there was substantial selling pressure when the New York Stock Exchange opened. Due to buy-sell order imbalances, many specialists didn't open the stocks they covered for trading during the first hour of the trading day. 11 of the 30 stocks in the Dow opened more than an hour late, and stocks representing one-third of the value of the S&P 500 were still not open by 10 a.m. Now, stock index futures did open on time, but with so many stocks not trading, some of the quotes used to construct the stock market indices that these futures tracked were stale. The price of an index is calculated using the most recent price quotes for the underlying stocks. Because out-of-date stock prices, ones from last Friday, were being used for over a third of the value of the index, the Dow and the S&P didn't decline as much as they would have otherwise. The index levels didn't represent what was happening in the market. The futures market was actually reflecting the heavy selling that was happening, and because the futures fell much more than the cash market appeared to, a gap was created between the value of stock indices in the cash market and in the futures market. Index arbitrage traders who used computer systems to take advantage of divergences like this were buying futures, which looked relatively cheap, and sending sell-at-market orders to the New York Stock Exchange, but for stocks that were often not yet trading. When these stocks finally opened, prices gapped down due to the accumulated sell orders, and the index arbitrageurs discovered that they had sold stocks at considerably lower prices than they had expected. When stocks gapped down like this, portfolio insurers' models prompted them to sell. The record trading volumes hitting the exchanges that day overwhelmed many automated systems. Fidelity was a major seller on the day of the crash, and many of their orders were entered using a relatively new touch-tone phone order entry system. Previously, a large institutional investor would not have been able to place the same volume of orders as were being pushed in that day, but the order execution systems were overwhelmed by the volume. On the New York Stock Exchange, Trade executions were being reported more than an hour late, which caused confusion amongst traders. Investors didn't know whether their limit orders had been executed or whether new limit orders needed to be set. The automated portfolio insurance-driven selling was noticed by market participants, who feared that there would be more and more automated selling. 
This encouraged a number of aggressive trading-oriented institutions to sell in anticipation of further market declines. These institutions included floor traders, hedge funds, pension and endowment funds, money management firms and investment banking houses. As they sold, the falling prices caused further reactive selling by portfolio insurers. A feedback loop was in effect. Now, not everyone agrees that portfolio insurance was to blame for the 87 crash, but most do consider it an important contributing factor. The 1988 SEC report on the crash says that these strategies were not the sole cause of the crash, but were a significant factor in accelerating and exacerbating the declines. It's been pointed out that other stock markets around the world crashed at the same time as the US market, and most of them didn't have any program trading or portfolio insurance products. Many international markets even had losses that were more severe than those seen in the United States. The Presidential Task Force on Market Mechanisms estimated at the time that $6 billion out of the $31 billion of sell orders executed both on the stock exchange and in the futures market were portfolio insurance trades. That comes to just over 19% of sell volume on the day of the crash, so there were many other big sellers. Robert Schiller of Yale University pointed out in a 1988 paper on the crash that while the idea of portfolio insurance or using the Black-Scholes model to create synthetic options positions was somewhat new at the time, investors didn't exactly need computers to know that selling stocks would cut their risk. Portfolio insurance just added an additional level of precision to a style of investing that had been around for a long time, where investors added to winning trades and cut their position sizes when facing losses. We'll be back after a quick break. Are you interested in small businesses? My name is David C. Barnett, and I've been podcasting and producing YouTube videos about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses for almost 10 years. I'm a former business broker and have owned and operated several businesses, and I've been advising business owners since the 1990s. Each week, I create a new podcast which answers one of your questions, and I've always got amazing, exciting guests. You can find me on YouTube by going to smallbusinessanddealmakingpodcast.com or just search David Barnett's Small Business in any podcasting app to find me. I look forward to seeing you around. Schiller argues that institutional investors who adopted portfolio insurance would have likely done something similar anyhow in the absence of these new quantitative strategies. He points out that a common theme in the popular press in the lead-up to the crash was that the bull market had gone on for a long time and that the market was overpriced. He says that charts of stock prices were frequently being discussed and interpreted in the press before the crash as showing a continuing bull market since 1982, with the question, when will it end? 
Schiller points out that a book called The Crash of 1990 by Ravi Batra was on the bestseller lists in advance of the crash in 87, and that the Atlantic magazine cover story on display on newsstands at the time of the crash had the headline, America is about to wake up to a painful new economic reality following the biggest binge of borrowing and spending in the history of the nation. He doesn't argue that these people predicted the crash, but instead he argues that after a long bull market, there was a general awareness that there could be a crash. He says that the big price declines in the preceding week left people wondering, is this it? And because of this unusual mindset, many reacted to price declines on the day by assuming it, meaning the crash, was happening. George Soros makes a similar argument. He puts forth that it's a mistake to think of the stock market as being a passive reflection of investor expectations, as is often done in academia. He claims that it works the other way around, and market prices instead shape investor expectations. He argues that this happens because it's impossible for people to be truly rational in the face of real uncertainty, and that the greater the uncertainty, the more investors are likely to take their cue from the stock market's recent behaviour. A rising stock market gives investors the urge to buy stocks, and when investors see others panicking, they panic too. Okay, so what are the other explanations for the crash? Well, one explanation is that margin calls and the way that they were implemented on the day were likely a significant contributor to the severity of the crash. Derivatives traders and traders who use leverage are required to post a portion of the value of their position in an account with their broker, which is known as margin. If the value of their trading position declines due to changes in market prices, they're then required to post more margin, and this is known as a margin call. The funds that are taken from the accounts of investors whose positions have fallen in value are then used to credit the accounts of investors whose positions have increased in value. At the time, the way margin accounts worked was that the exchanges first made margin calls against all of the positions that lost value and only later credited the accounts of investors whose positions had gained in value. So even if an investor had offsetting positions, they would have had to post margin on the part of the position that lost money and would only later receive credit for the offsetting position that had made money. Margin calls could be made throughout the day and were always done at the end of the day. For intraday margin calls, investors needed to post additional margin within the hour. For end-of-day margin calls, additional margin was required to be posted before the exchange opened the next day. The sharp price movements in futures markets on the day of the crash resulted in record intra- and end-of-day margin calls for firms that were members of the CME Clearinghouse. These margin calls were about 10 times the typical size. Because of the lag between collecting margin and paying it out, these margin calls strained market participants significantly, as many traders who hadn't even lost money on their overall positions had to arrange loans to bridge this time gap. 
Lenders were obviously less willing to make these kinds of loans, seeing the chaos in the markets. And this meant that many traders had to liquidate positions that they would not normally have done. These forced liquidations would have added to the chaos on the day. Another big problem on the day was that trading volume was so high that the computer and communication systems in place at the time were overwhelmed, often leaving orders unfilled for an hour or more. Large fund transfers were delayed for hours and the Fedwire and New York Stock Exchange Superdot systems shut down for extended periods, further compounding investor confusion. Two economists who worked at the SEC, Mitchell and Netter, published an analysis in 1989 that argued that the anti-takeover legislation that had been moving through Congress triggered the crash. They noted that the announcement of the legislation caused the sell-off in the days before the crash and that the stocks that led the market downward were precisely the ones most affected by the proposed legislation. Ultimately, the new law was stripped of the provisions that concerned the stock market before it was passed. A number of analysts argued that the stock market was overvalued in the lead-up to the crash. The index PE, which had typically traded at around 15, had reached 20 by October 1987. Does that mean that overvaluation caused the crash? Well, while these ratios were higher than normal in the lead-up to the crash, similar P.E. ratios had been seen between 1960 and 1972, and no crash had happened in that period. Another argument we can consider is that attractive long-term bond yields might have contributed to the crash. Bond yields started 1987 at 7.6%, but had climbed to approximately 10% the summer before the crash. This offered investors an attractive alternative to stocks. Before the opening of financial markets on Tuesday, October 20th, the Federal Reserve issued a short statement that read, The Federal Reserve, consistent with its responsibilities as the nation's central bank, affirmed today its readiness to serve as a source of liquidity to support the economic and financial system. This statement reportedly contributed significantly towards supporting market sentiment. Trading on the day after the crash was disorderly, with stocks frequently being closed for trading by the New York Stock Exchange specialists, as order imbalances made maintaining orderly markets very difficult. Bid-ask spreads were very wide, reflecting floor traders' reluctance to step in. Due to the huge volumes of trades that had happened the prior day, two CME members had not received margin payments due to them by noon, as was usual. This kicked off rumours about the solvency of the exchange and its ability to make these payments. These rumours turned out to be unfounded, but nonetheless allegedly deterred some investors from trading on the CME that day. Trading on the CME and the CBOE were closed early that day due to the disorderly trading. Later in the afternoon, there was a sustained rise in financial markets as companies announced stock buyback programs to support demand for their stocks. The market posted a record one-day gain of over 100 points that day. 
The Federal Reserve was active in the wake of the crash, providing liquidity, easing short-term credit conditions, and issuing public statements affirming its commitment to providing liquidity. The liquidity support was important on its own, but the public nature of the central bank's activities likely helped support market confidence. The Federal Reserve also encouraged the commercial banking system to extend liquidity support to other financial market participants. This was seen as important in helping financial markets return to more normal functioning. The 1987 crash didn't just affect American markets. London Stock Exchange turned out to be more vulnerable than New York's, and the Swiss market was shaken even more. The worst hit was the Hong Kong market, where a group of futures traders managed to persuade the colony's government to suspend stock trading for the rest of the week in an effort to settle futures contracts at an artificial pre-crash level. This ploy failed and the speculators were wiped out. The Hong Kong futures market had to be rescued by government intervention. While the Hong Kong market was suspended, selling from Hong Kong radiated to other markets in Asia, Australia and Britain. The selling pressure persisted for the better part of two weeks after Black Monday. Although other stock markets hit new lows, the New York market did not exceed the lows set in the initial selling climax. Only Japan's market appeared to escape collapse. A one-day panic followed Black Monday when prices on October 20th fell the legal limit of 15% on low volume. When the Japanese market reopened on Wednesday, there was some selling pressure. The Ministry of Finance made a few telephone calls and the sell orders disappeared. Large financial institutions began aggressively buying stocks. The market recovered a large part of the prior day's losses. The crash of New Zealand's stock market was particularly severe as the market continued to fall long after other global markets had recovered. New Zealand's stock market fell nearly 15% on the first day of the crash, but then the market continued to decline, bottoming in February 1988 after losing 60% of its value. Over time, markets recovered, with the following five years seeing U.S. stock prices rise an average of 14.7% per year, European markets by 7.6% a year, the U.K. market by 8% a year, and global stock markets as a whole by 6.3% per year. Japan, the country that had appeared to avoid the worst of the crash, was the only major country to suffer market losses in the years afterwards, as initial gains in the Nikkei gave way to a spectacular decline by 1990. All in, Japan's stock prices declined by 7.2% a year, on average, over the next five years. Regulators learned some crucial lessons from the events of October 1987. For one, circuit breakers were introduced that were designed to temporarily halt trading in instances of exceptionally large price declines, thus giving market participants some time to gauge what was happening in the market and respond more rationally. 
Greater regulatory scrutiny was also applied to trade clearing protocols to bring uniformity to all prominent market products. Traders and risk managers learned a lot from the 87 crash too. Lessons learned from the crash changed patterns in implied volatility, which is used in the pricing of financial options. Equity options didn't show a volatility smile before the crash, but began showing one afterwards. The 1987 crash had a huge effect on the psyche of traders and investors, where they learned how violent market moves can be. The crash provided a career for Nicholas Nassim Tlaib, who was a derivatives trader at the time, and went on to write seven to ten books on the idea that markets can move much more than many people realize. So how much was the market down in 1987? Well, it wasn't down. The S&P 500 finished the year up a bit over 2%. That's all for now. See you again soon. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.